0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. It's Monday. It looks like we made it through the weekend. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. I got an incredible show for you today with an incredible individual who may be one of the most well-read individuals we've ever had on the podcast. We've had him a few times before. For those who may not know, let me take a moment to introduce you to the one and only Dr. Simon Vanderel. A visionary guide in the exploration of healing and wholeness, his journey from the intricate world of molecular microbiology to a holistic understanding of the meta-crisis is a testament to his commitment to unraveling the interconnected mysteries of existence. With a blend of academic prowess, contemplative practices, and a touch of the fantastical, Simon facilitates transformative conversations that stretch the boundaries of imagination and delve into the profound realms of speculative philosophy. I hope you will all join us in welcoming as we embark on a journey with Simon to explore the cosmic dimensions of healing and the uncharted territories of consciousness. Dr. Simon, thank you for being here today, my friend. How are you?
1: (laughs) Wow. What an introduction. That's amazing. (laughs) I've never been introduced in this. uh, That sets sets the bar high, so uh, I'll I'll sit up straight. Yeah, uh, right? I'm I'm doing uh, doing good.
0: Nice to be back. Yeah, it is. It's really good to have you back here. And congratulations on the book and, and all the publishings. And what an interesting time we live in, right? I, I, I was looking at some of your posts and, um, you know, I'm not sure where we want to begin with this. Maybe a good spot is I know that you've recently finished the giant Bohemoth two-volume set of um, The Matter With Things. Maybe we could start, start there, man. What do you think about it?
1: I finished part one of that. Okay. I'm in part two at the moment, and uh, I was just joking with a friend of mine uh, who is also interested in uh, McGillcrith's work. Um, I sent him, uh, I, I read it, and then I make pictures. And I'm like, oh, this uh, this part is really good, and I'm now in a chapter on time, mm. and I, I, I just I just told him like it's it's a it's a interesting mix between aha and whoa, this is amazing! And what the hell does what the hell does this mean? <laughs> so I'm constantly sort of, uh, yeah, I would have to say I'm, I'm chewing my way through it, and it's uh, it's taking uh, taking a while. it's very, very good.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's it's one of those ones like I, I haven't got it. I don't know, but I've read some of Crest before, and it's there's times you just got to set the book down and be like, okay, what's going on here. Let me just think yeah. for a minute. What is? Let me read this a yeah. third time. Let me let me see what I can get out of it again.
1: For those yeah, that may not const- know,
0: yeah, he
1: constantly uh, references or quotes, or he has like whole sections of these other amazing scholars and philosophers. And then I'm constantly like, okay, I, oh, I might want to have to read this person or this person. And if you then check his bibliography, it's 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 massive. So I'm thinking like, how how does this man do this? How does so I think, yeah, he, he the, the sheer amount of scholarship that goes into the work is, is actually, yeah, absolutely insane. Uh, and it's great because he, he you can tell that he reads all the sources and uh, he reads, yeah, he, his mind roams wide uh, and he, yeah, he finds all these interesting citations and quotes just for the right uh, topics. And then I also encounter like, like uh scholars that I wouldn't think that he had read, then it's like, oh, all of a sudden he quotes that as well. Yeah,
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I know that we've spoke a little bit about um, brain lateralization, but in the matter with things, from what I've just touched upon a little bit, and maybe you can embrace this a little bit more, is the fundamental reality unfolding in front of us seems to be favoring the, the left hemisphere, like this real analytical approach, but we're beginning to see how the right here, the right hemisphere interprets the world on something. I mean, you can touch on that a little bit and, and mm. kind of, you know, piece together yeah. some of the things that he's talking about.
1: Yeah, so the interesting thing about Ian e. McGilchrist's work is I think it's incredibly difficult to summarize <laughs> because it's, he, 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 the, the way the man writes is already like a... Right he takes uh, he takes his time but he to to make an attempt of at summarizing it i think uh, he calls it a hemisphere hypothesis and uh, what he states and illustrates in his books is, is that um, we carry two ways of seeing the world within us within our brains and this is a sort of brain lateralization and then in a very Uh, Again, you should read his work if you're interested, but in a very, very um, uh, short manner, um, the right hemisphere is a sort of uh, broad, broad attention to a whole field of moving things. And while the left hemisphere is a very narrow focused attention, and there's also this lateralization that the left hemisphere is very much focused on uh, language and tool utilization. all these kind of things, while the right hemisphere is more interested or deals with flow, with flowing time. So the, the left hemisphere also decontextualizes. So this narrow beam of attention allows us to pick up um, individual objects from their surroundings. So and then we also see them as objects. but we create a mental image of that object. So we decontextualize it. We create a representation. So it's a re-presenting. And what McGilchrist said, says, which I really like, is that the right hemisphere deals with presencing. So the right hemisphere presence deals with everything that is happening in the moment, flow, these kind of things. And the left hemisphere is like a maybe like a tractor beam that picks up objects, focuses on them, and then takes them out of the uh, surrounding, so we can um, so we can interact with them. So we can modify them and we can use them. And yeah, you were saying that we, uh, and this is also McGilchrist's point, uh, he takes a large part of his first book, in The Master and His Emissary, where he describes what would a left hemisphere spherical world look like. And he takes a whole chapter for this, and he more or less describes our current world. There's this over bureaucratization and these uh, these systems. So it's very map heavy. So if the if the right hemisphere deals with the territory, which is lived experience, which is the physical real and the left hemisphere deals with a map made of the territory. But if this map is super intricate and wide ranging as the one we have now with this hyper proliferation of information and all these legacy systems that hold. Um, yeah, how you say? laws and all these kind of things so this oh, this, this whole bureaucratic uh, system is stereotypically something that he would call i think left hemispherical or left hemisphere dominated and the problem with that shouldn't be a big problem uh, oh and important to note it's not that we see the world either or it's the right hemisphere sees both so it's and um, he, he typically uses the, the uh, metaphor. I think which are the one that I really like is when you would have to play a piece of music. That the right hemisphere initially can hear the piece of the piece of music as a whole thing, and feel the experience of it. And as you are going to have to practice playing that song, the left hemisphere will have to step in to play all these uh, the short bits that are very intricate. I'm not a musician, but but uh, the left hemisphere is more focused on the decontextualizing again, so you have to grind it out. But if you would have, if you would play the entire song the way you've learned it by just the left hemisphere, then it's this disjointed thing, right? So what he then says is then uh, in a in a well functioning left right hemisphere interaction, uh, it's appreciating the whole, going into detail, and then the details get uh, released again to join the whole again, and that's sort of the, the ongoing uh, way of these two how they interact. And what he means with a left hemisphere dominated world, or what I would mean with that, is is that we're not giving up those deep contextualized parts that focus on the map is not being subsumed in any healthy whole anymore, not in the felt experience not in the present moment it's also with time for instance Mm. uh, that we live on clock time which is an which is a human
0: construct
1: yeah
0: you know it's interesting you bring up music i was talking to a musician friend of mine who's adam lopez if you listen to man you're an amazing musician and he's he's an old school musician. Like he travels, he just goes from state to state and he'll play, you know, private concerts, private parties, he'll play in clubs, wherever people want him to play, he'll play at. And, you know, we he's really good too, and he's really talented. And and when he talks about putting out a new album, we talked about going to Nashville. He kind of has this rockabilly style. And I was asking him about Nashville, and he just kind of looked got this look on his face like, ah, oh, George, I he goes, I can't, I don't even like talking about it. But I, you know, I I, I want to draw it out. I'm like, why not? And he goes like, he goes, you know, George, this let me let me tell you how modern music is made in studios. You go in there and you play one chord, they record it, and they sample it, and then that becomes the chord that plays throughout the entire song. So a guy, somebody could come in and they'll play five chords, and then the music team will put those five chords together, and that becomes the song. And he goes, the same with singing. You'll say one word, they'll record it, and that becomes the song. He goes, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in going out and playing music to people. I want to play the whole song. And you know what? It's probably going to, I'm probably going to fuck up from time to time. There might be some mess ups in there, but that's Mm. part of the music. I'm not going to play the same song in Nashville that I play in Texas. Every time I play it, it's a different song. But that kind of gets back to what you were saying as that part all of a sudden becomes the focus. And it seems like you're seeing it in music where if I can come in and play one chord, okay, that's the left hemisphere. That's the one time boom. And then people begin to respect that. Like, isn't that wonderful? Look, they played that one chord. No, that's not wonderful. That's not music. Mm-hmm. It's one piece that they pulled out of the hole, and they've made that the whole thing that we that we that we love. What do you think? Yeah, and
1: you and you, as you were speaking, you immediately hit another point that uh, McGillcrist um, often reiter uh, reiterates when he, he wants to make this point is, for the left hemisphere, the whole the whole thing is made up. Of parts (laughs) so the the left hemisphere sees uh, sees the whole as a thing that can be decontextualized and put into small analyzed so Mm -hmm. lysed into pieces and then built up again but for instance if it's about a living thing so I I would call a song or music something that is alive it deals with flow it's the same for instance uh, let's use a morbid example if you would um, um, if you would uh, dissected dog or vivisect an animal into pieces and yeah then it's dead but if you were able to perfectly put it back together again it's still dead right Yep. and that's the, that's the problem let's say with the left hemispherical look on things it's it's seeing if the world is made out of bits or the universe is made yeah. out of bits or this whole experience and then if you understand all the bits just enough then you could build it up uh, from yeah, from the bottom and explain the whole thing. But yeah, in thesis is that 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 it's just not possible, or that's a mistake. That's a left hemispherical way of seeing it. And this is also a divide in he, he calls it a divide in philosophy from pre-Platonic uh, philosophy, like Heraclitus is mm. more of a philosopher of flow and what. And then you have you have process philosophy and analytical philosophy. And, so Read the book. Read the book. It's great. <laughs> I also feel like if I'm talking about the book, it's like oh, I uh, uh, there's just so much information yeah. in there, and I I I, I love to regurgitate it, and then sure. I'm like I'm forgetting
0: things. And, you know. It's I wanted to bring it up in the beginning because I think it's a good segue into, into the way you think. You know, you have a very diverse way at looking at the world, and I think it's because you see the whole picture. But maybe you can talk a little bit about your philosophy of life. Like, you know, how is it that one mm. moment you're writing about the metacrisis and then the next moment it's rewilding? Like, how do all these things come together? Because I know you have a whole picture, but maybe you can give us a little bit of background on on how the things that you've been talking about relate to one another.
1: Nice. That's a that's a that's a super nice question. Maybe I haven't even okay, then I haven't even thought of that so
0: that's why i love it
1: (laughs) let's do that uh let's do that now um let me sense for a bit
0: take your time man it's a it's a deep question
1: i think what is essential to to the way i yeah i think what is essential to the way that i see things or i feel or sense things is that um, the universe is alive um, and coming from a Western traditional science um, and molecular science. The first thing that we do in molecular biology when we study something is we kill it. Mm. And then we look at all the bits, the molecular bits so the DNA, the molecules. Uh, or the, yeah, the proteins, enzymes, RNA, yada yada. We take a snapshot, so we freeze it, kill it, and then we analyze, and then we think back on how to study that life. And if we start from the idea that our, what I mean with that is that even as a biologist, we treat life in a non, often, often not all biologists, but often in a non-sacred way as if it's not alive because we model physics and the old model of physics, the old Newtonian model of physics was based on a sort of clockwork universe, mm-hmm. or a giant me- mechanism. And a mechanism is a machine is by definition not alive. Or at least in biology, often we talk, We I even wrote it in my, uh, the, the machine metaphor is hyper prevalent in in Uh, the life sciences well i feel more and more like that isn't the case it isn't a uh, a machine Mm. i use it as one of the propositions in my thesis so in the thesis uh, you get the you get the um, option uh, where you defend your thesis to add a couple of propositions that don't necessarily have anything to do with your work that you publish Mm -hmm. in the book but that you also want to defend so they have to be of scientific rigor And I used one in which I said that in bio, in bio, I have to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly what it was. But in biology, it's a bigger sin to mechanomorphize than to anthropomorphize. And what I meant with that is usually anthropomorphizing is is like a massive sin mm-hmm. in research it's like yeah you cannot project human feelings or human ideas or human agency or uh, even a sense of uh, agency or uh, uh, intentionality on mechanical things so if you look at bacteria it's like now it's it's the selfish gene i it just <laughs> wants it to survive all these kind of things um while what I wanted to shine a light on is, is that if we mechanomorphize nature, then we're doing something way weirder actually. Because when mm. we're saying, like, no, this this thing is not alive, this bacteria, but it's more like a clock. It's more like a like a like a car, let's say. So it's it's a it's a machine built up of parts. If we understand the parts, then and, and so we, we what I feel is that we take away by having that lens. That sort of the devitalization so it's, it's removing life from something living right and by doing that we also strip it of a lot of information that we might if, if we were taking it seriously in right. my opinion uh, we might glean way more information from it or we would learn way more from it and that's i think i'm more interested in though. so what can we learn from the living World, but also, yeah, the living cosmos more, yeah, so larger and larger, yeah. And that's why I think that on the base level, the universe or the, the cosmos is alive and it's a living, developing thing. And I, i that's why I also uh, am interested. No, to make it short, why I'm interested, then I think that's the base motivation that I the base uh feeling that i have and all the work or all the reading and all the things that i like to do is connecting people back to nature because that's a that's the living to the living cosmos Mm -hmm. and embedding ourselves back into this living environment because i sense that that is one of the ways or one of the necessary ingredients or or strategies of making it out of the meta crisis as Mm -hmm. a species. I think we are being asked to reintegrate into the living world and notice we are already fully integrated in the living world. I mean, mostly from here
0: that our map
1: integrates in the living world and we start living with it again.
0: I like that. It's, it's interesting on so many levels. I, as you're, as you're, as I'm listening to what you're saying and, and the idea of, of anthropomorphizing versus like on some level, it makes me think of science losing a lot of its credibility. It's Science, on some level, and look, I'm not a scientist or anything like that, so, so I'm sure people are going to get mad at me right here, but it seems to me that silence, science is, is basically prophecy. We're going to kill this thing And then try to make a prediction about the future, about what happened on the past. Like That seems like prophecy to me in some ways. And I I think that there's a lot of great things about the scientific method. And I'm so stoked we've had it as a vehicle to get us here. And I know it'll continue to take us great places. However, it does seem like like that vehicle of science is beginning to pull parallel back to the vehicle of spirituality. Maybe spirituality is beginning to, to lead the race again. And when I start looking at the way in which people are are looking at subjective behavior in in trials, maybe not clinical trials, but they're beginning to bring the subjectivity back into questionnaires and giving it to people that have mental issues breaking down. And they're beginning to, Mm. hey, ask the family questions. Like, hey, is your husband less of an asshole now? Or, you know, like these ideas that may not have something you could put a slide rule on or a ruler against that were commonly Mm. thrown out of the clinics are now being brought back in. And I think that echoes what you're saying about, look, this living form over here we can recognize ourselves in that and why is that a bad thing like that's probably a good thing if we can recognize ourselves in this other living organism now we have another way to look at ourselves and you can learn a lot from that angle right is that is that too far to think about maybe the the, the moving around like that
1: <clears throat> no, no no i i agree with you <clears throat> and um it's good that you added that science is is a very great tool it's a very of, great of it tool it's amazing
0: but it doesn't so matter we start... change our mind sometimes you know it's okay exactly. to change our idea yeah
1: it's it's not throwing out the that's also my point it's not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. yeah or... i agree um your point on uh, spirituality and science i think anything that's not within the um let's say current framework of a scientific field often will get banished to what we would call spirituality and um i think that we're we're also in a in a place where science uh, as a discipline uh, has been so hyper specialized so so we we often use the uh, working as a modern scientist in a a, let's say a normal um normal normal field so the standard field it's it's akin to being in a centimeter of a, a set of being in a hole of a centimeter wide and a kilometer deep <laughs> <in> how specific <laughs> it is and um the 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 so we have an incredibly high resolution of a lot of things uh but there, the but where where what I think is where we uh, hitting up against certain boundaries of our mm-hmm. current frameworks or our current paradigms of where that data fits into, so we're we're hitting the the boundaries of or or we're having problems with explaining, and, and I mean we as a sort of right. as the whole species sure. uh, having problems explaining or matching these way larger problems or or of how the universe works and. I'm not a physicist. I only I try to read a little bit on it, but I, yeah, I, I don't. I cannot match that stuff. But I I do hear, and I think there's also within modern physics, quantum quantum science, there's quite a bit of a problem trying to match all the theories. I guess. Yeah. But okay, I'm not. Uh, I'm not well versed in that. Uh, but within biology, I, I, I would say that um, for me, the sense is very much that we're, we're the same as uh, an example, for instance, uh, cancer, uh, hmm. cancer research. And uh, sure, there have been a lot of cancer medications for treatment of cancer. The prevention of cancer is the tools that we are using, the reductionist science tools, and the high complexity of even a single human cell, it's so incredibly difficult to get to results or to get to cures,
2: mm. even
1: with the, so for instance, most most cancer treatments have a lot of side effects. And yeah. those side effects are also, because we don't understand the whole system, because it's so incredibly complex. Yeah. And that's again a meta-crisis problem. If we if we are stuck in the mindset of problem solution, and we only design our solution or only our, our treatment for the desired solution without taking into account second order, third order, fourth, or not nth order effects, then you wind up with more problems. So your, your solution is causing more problems down the road. And i have a feeling that modern man or so, so 21st century humans as we're running into all these planetary boundaries of like uh, well climate change uh, acidification of the ocean biodiversity crisis all these things we're running into all the problems of our previous solutions mm. so our uh, the way we do uh, industrial agriculture which yeah. was a solution sure. because people needed food and then okay these cultivars uh, were developed which could be grown way closer to each other Uh, artificial fertilizer based on uh, fossil carbons of the with the Haber-Posch method okay and then we can grow more and more food but then human population also skyrockets and now we're heading to these issues where there's soil soil depletion well, all this kind of stuff so the, the the I think this is also a main motivator for me to uh, try to explore, or at least for myself, and then also in my in my uh, writing or in the communication that I have with people, is to develop a way of sensing the sensing the world, uh, a novel map, or the, maybe uh, or a new configuration of the map. So it can yeah. also include a lot of old things. I'm not. It doesn't have to be the next best idea i think mm-hmm. we can uh we can also look back uh, on uh, or there are, there are probably already a lot of very good ways of seeing the world still alive and most likely also in indigenous cultures yeah different ways of interpreting different languages um i think it's just a uh i think it's a problem of um yeah integrating in a you know yeah in a well thought out way that maps uh, that actually maps, but we've it's it's a massive challenge because of also the amount sheer amount of information that we have, and that's it, that makes it difficult also for an, for me as an individual, for I think for any individual yeah. to make sense of things, is because there's so much information and most likely even with good scientific information it will take you a while to figure out what is actually true because friend you can make you can find almost any data to fit any hypothesis mm-hmm. uh, and i'm not saying that then any hypothesis is true but it will mm-hmm. take you a while to figure out whether it's true or not and i noticed that because or getting getting sort of deluged with information it's difficult to uh, do the due diligence so it's the slowing down and trying to integrate so yeah
0: it's fascinating to me it's I, I love the idea i love what you said about we're bumping up against the problems of our previous solutions you know it, it begins to beg the question of what were we solving for in the first place maybe that was the problem <laughs> You know, like and and yeah. you're right, there's so much information. i the old one thing I know for sure is the older I get, the less I know. And that seems weird because you go through life thinking you know all these things. Oh, I read the history of that. Who'se history? Whose history did you read? Did you read the Americas History? Or did you read Japan's History? Did you read the History of the Boomers or the History of Generation X? Like it's constantly changing. And when you start thinking about that, you realize, okay, I get it. The people that wrote history knew it was wrong but they had to have some sort of shared sacrifice foundation to build on. You know, and it's not that they wanted to be horrible people. It's not that they they purposely tried to lie to everybody. It's like, look, damn it, we need a foundation to build on. Let's go with this. It's true enough. You know, you run into this yeah. idea of true enough, but in this integrated world, like I don't know if true enough is good enough. Mm. <laughs> what
2: do you think? Nice. Oh, is that too crazy? Nice.
1: No, I like that. Yeah yeah or at least not not true enough with the power that we're wielding yes it's like is That's this accurate point. yeah it's accurate enough it's like okay Are you sure? if, you were, yeah. if we had like a little little hammer and we were like like building things then it's like okay we can make some mistakes but we're using yeah. like we're losing atomic weapons <laughs> and so is this true enough nah. especially when it comes to to uh, yeah, again, that that uh, problem solution mindset. It's right. Can we that ide- Do we identify already? Right. How are we identifying what is a problem? Yes, right. And it's very based on our yeah. in our on our framework how we look at things. So I'm. That's also one of the main things I'm interested in is um, perception. Just on mm. a sort of base level, how. How do we sense things, and then I'm yeah. So how do we perceive things with different senses, and also in um, so it's less about what to think, and I think more about how how to think.
0: This brings up so an what, interesting question. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so about what what are the uh, what are the, the the assumptions and the what are the heuristics that we use yeah. to think about things. Because, it, the, yeah, then we, then we sort of, I think we cannot think unbiased. Bias is, uh, depending on which glasses you put on or which right. tool you use to think with, you will have an, a bias and an assumption. The most important thing is to then be aware of that bias and to have multiple sets of glasses. So you yeah. can actually shift and that you can know, like, okay, if i If I privilege this part of me that wants this, 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 then this is my opinion. If I privilege this part of me, then I find this, 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 and then this is my opinion. I think this is constantly happening already within us as we are a sort of constellation of different uh, sub-personalities or smaller parts or even smaller parts. I think we are a sort of high consciousness. Um, And within that, the central ego, or whatever that is, the one that has to make the decision, yeah. It's like the speaker in Congress, and you have all these different parties. And at a certain moment, there has to be made a executive decision. But it's being aware of who is all, what are all the opinions, who is making the decisions so based on what, what are they, what are the needs and the biases. And the more I think, again, I pull it to myself. Uh, pull my view to the sort of individual level to myself. But the more I become aware of this, I think the more I can also be aware of this whenever I would work in a group or if I would Mm -hmm. have to work in an organization. And I think that's part of the sort of, yeah, navigating the meta crisis is a lot of inner work. It's less, yeah, it's more inner work than work out there. I think it's more about getting really to terms with, um, how we are as modern modern people. So how uh I would say, yeah, you know, sometimes I struggle with the correct word, but not maybe deficient. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that's the right Makes word. Sense. How how lacking we are yes. as 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 uh, modern Westerners, I would say. I, I I cannot speak for the rest of the world, but let's let me speak for myself.
0: I, l- I love the idea that you brought up ad- adaptability. And I have this, I'm I seeing this thing happen. I'm curious to get your opinion on it. I think on some level, what we're beginning to see is a fundamental shift in sense ratios in the human species. And because there's so much information, we're beginning to adapt to that. And we're going to, pro- like, I believe that today's children are going to process information through their senses differently than we do, and an example of that is, but let's look at language. A large part of conflicts from time immemorial have been because people can't thoroughly express themselves to one another. You know, is it real? Are you are you are you really going to spread democracy? Are you going to steal all their resources? Why are you taking their resources? Because we need them. Why do you need them? We need them more than them for these reasons. Like. There's a complete lack of communication that's happening. Is there a way to distribute it better? Probably. But I think that what we're seeing happen to our species right now is a fundamental shift in sense ratios. Like, let's look at the texture of language. Like, I think this is going to become a thing. And I think that because I'm trying to make it a thing. Mm, okay. okay. <laughs> so, the texture of language, like, language has vibrations, different words ha- denote intentions. And so if I say to you you are an incredibly well-thought well-thought-out individual and I love the way in which you're able to express your ideas, that thought has a texture to it and I if I if I put it into a, a synthesizer or an equalizer, you could probably see the wave function of it. And I think that that translates to people in a different way. And I think you could there could be classes where people regardless of what language you speak, the shape of that word hits someone in a way that is meaningful. And that's what I mean by the texture of language. I believe that this could be something that a group of people who don't even speak the same language could get together and you could see that wave function and it would show an emotion register through a smile, through a light up of the eyes, through an eyebrow flash. But I think that that's something that could be brought into teaching language. Like the texture of language is meaningful. And when you begin to think about that, wow now you can see language through an equalizer you can see language through the emotions of people but like on some level i think ai and all of this information is being coalesced into it okay you monkeys have just begun to get vowels like your our first language is vowels english is a vowel but now we're learning how to put vowels together with words and images that'll be like a sentence. And the next generation will actually be able to communicate on a level that's meaningful. You know, it seems like an impassive. Is that too far out there? What do you think?
1: No, I, I like it. I like how where, where you're going with it. What I, <clears throat> what I have to think back on is um, uh, I think in older, many older civilizations, the word language is seen as power, right? Yes. Spelling. It's like casting spells Ooh, i've been here um, a lot <clears throat>
2: uh,
1: I, th- I remember like the what is it the uh, i think i have it here the 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 four agreements like the total right. uh, book yeah right he, he also talks about language again about the spell casting with words and i think what you're hitting on is like the it has less to do with the words and more with the intention behind the words
0: Yes. Uh, And maybe
1: some words capture that intention better than others. So maybe some words are more powerful or are better vehicles for capturing meaning or conveying conveying energy or better containers. Yeah. Um and yeah, I, I I am very curious what is happening to us as a species in the information age, and we're in the middle of this massive experiment, because we don't know yet. Um, I I sometimes get the idea that, um, like an upsurge in neurodivergence, uh, or people that get diagnosed with neurodivergence, I don't think it's only uh, that we have better diagnostic tools. Mm -hmm. uh, that happens more. I do like to take that, for instance, I think Gabo Mate makes about uh, a lot of these things being trauma-related, which I can, yeah, which which sort of tracks for me. Or right. That's it. Fits. Agreed. But there might be also a a sort of adaptation happening, so neuroplasticity, to this sort of high informational load, this, this environment. But uh, without making a moralistic Point about it is this: good or bad? Because, um, yeah, we can also talk about that. But yeah, I think on a sort of base base level, it's it's a species adapting to an environment, and that might be also illustrated by these sort of more cases of uh, neurodivergence, be it uh, ADHD or uh, different types of uh, autism. It has something to do with sort of how, how information is processed right mm-hmm. um, i i often have to think back on the uh jiddu krishnamurti quote which i <laughs> I, I just really like <clears throat> uh, it's the it's no measure of health being well adjusted to a profoundly sick society and he, yeah so he said it somewhere in, in the 60s i think or 70s yeah. uh, that was before well, mass media was there, but that's before this mass information technology. Yeah, and if I have to sense for myself, so this 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 machine, I struggle, man. And I don't think it's uh, no. I think it's it's, uh, it's uh, the way how this 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 information is shared, uh, especially on um, well uh, these these algorithmic based social right. media platforms i think it's 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 yeah it's like a, almost a psychic warfare mm-hmm. i also remember the quote somewhere that um was it mm, yeah marketing is peacetime propaganda
2: mm-hmm.
1: and yeah i i it kind of kind of is so i oh, i i so- uh, I'm not sure if if we as humans are capable of adapting fast enough to this changing environment. and also, i am not sure if we would want to if that is a desirable change. so it's it's a bit of a, yeah, depending on on where you see the world going. i mm-hmm. I'm more in the favor of pushing the brakes on but there's there's no there appears to be no cockpit where there is a break, <laughs> and so so uh, it, it looks like we're in this thing.
0: Yeah, it's a uh, Bernaysian economics on a level that is out of control. You know, it, I'm, I'm fascinated by propaganda. I'm fascinated by mental techniques that manipulate behavior, whether it's good or bad. Like okay. it's mesmerizing to me to see how language or a spell or you know, getting people to see things a certain way will cause a certain behavior. And I'm not sure the people that are in charge of that machinery are thoroughly aware of the unintended consequences that they've brought about. But I don't think they're going to be good for the people in positions of authority. You know, it's like, look, we're going to get all to buy this. (gasps) But what about this? You know, like, I, I don't think, I don't know if we, as a species, are capable of thoroughly understanding the unintended consequences. And, you know, maybe when you say you want to put the brakes on things, are you thinking about the way in which you know um, the AI genie is out of the bottle, or is that what you mean by the like, acceleration? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, tell me yeah. about it, man. Why? Why did you put the brakes yeah. on for? Um, yeah.
1: So I I was I was just sort of reading into AI. Uh, so in the past past couple of years, what I initially got into when i started worrying about the state of the world mm-hmm. uh, i very quickly got to human systems because i thought okay i can i can read up on climate change and on biodiversity laws but these are all uh or social uh social collapse these are all symptoms of an underlying cause or at least these are all symptoms of something else and then i got into uh, overshoot which is a uh, is a uh, is a phenomena which is uh, yeah well used in ecology and it explains how a population can overshoot the carrying capacity of its environment mm-hmm. so meaning the amount of food that's available a simple example is um, for instance you have uh, in, in Canada or a place with islands or fjords in winter the fjord freezes over a couple of deer make it to an island and then in spring the the snow or the ice melts, and these deer are stuck on the island. There are no predators there. Mm. So, what happens is they'll just eat and they'll reproduce, and you'll get more and more deer. And what will happen is that they will overshoot the carrying capacity of that island, and after that, they will starve. Yeah. But what happens in that overshoot, so the ecological debt that's built up in that population growth, uh, it will uh, that that will be uh, uh, or will cause more damage to the environment. So what will also happen is that the carrying capacity is not a stable thing. It's not like, OK, this, this island can fit three deer. That's it. Uh, it's also a dynamic thing. So what will happen is, is that as these animals are starving, they'll start eating more and more also things that they wouldn't normally eat, which will further debase the ecological carrying capacity mm-hmm. of the island. And that will further plummet down. So Overshoot often happens when species are found in an uh, environment without any, um, how do you say, without any breaks, right. sort of from the environment. Right. And I I sort of started looking at the human, human growth curve after looking at uh, bacterial growth curves for years in the lab. It kind of looks similar. And I thought, okay, it looks like we're in overshoot why why are we in overshoot so overshoot on the on the, the y axis is population but it's population times consumption so it's also mm-hmm. how much does an individual of that population consume depending on the that that will have an influence on the carrying capacity right yeah. so you have also this earth overshoot day website where they say like okay uh, if everybody would live like a person in i think it's a person in the netherlands uh use up that amount of resources we would need 3.6 planets um and then so you have different different rates for different places in the world but if everyone would live as the average person in india we would uh, we would have, need 0.9 planets and so these these are of course large metrics and but it's illustrative of a point so it has something to do with that consumption rate And what i was thinking is that a major part of that consumption rate is our culture right Mm. it's the consumer culture Uh, it's the way we actively um actively uh, pursue consumption as a as a uh, an act something that we really want to do instead of consumption for just survival and again i'm saying we Western, affluent worlds. I'm not not (laughs) saying people in, I don't know, poorer places. Um, And so it's interesting then to look at what what are the drivers in the culture that do these things? Uh, How are we a non-life affirming culture? What are all the the underlying drivers of this? What, What is causing all these things? That's something I'm Mainly interested in, but I'm also interested in what are the accelerators of the current problems, and AI I think is mainly an accelerator of the current mm. problems, another problem solver. Ah, um, okay. And I initially thought I was clever um, when I was reading on AI risk, and I I, I read a bit on, of course, well Ian Gilchrist, but also Jean Bodenriar, which was like mm. a, he was called like the archpriest of postmodernism. Very difficult. <laughs> I found it very difficult to read. But I like this idea about hyper-reality, uh, which is a point. Again, I have to just, this is my interpretation of it. Sure. Um, what he describes is a hyper-proliferation of uh, symbols and signs. So th- the map, the things, not the, not the physical reality, not the thing itself, but our symbols of that thing and the more we live in an abstract or a symbolized world so as we are talking on a digital platform right it's also human crafted uh, signs and symbols and um, as we are more living in that world he says that what will happen is is that our map of reality will start um will start replacing reality so we're crea- as we're creating a map that one on one fits. We think one on one fits the physical real, fits the planet. We are replacing it with our representations, and the Anthropocene is mm. the world shaped by man. So we're we're sort of projecting our our inner world on the world, and we're changing it to fit our inner world. Mm. <clears throat> and what I was thinking with AI. Uh, Or The main point that he was making, I think, about hyper-reality is that it's also becoming then very, very difficult to discern what is real anymore because the real is actually disappearing, right? Right. Because we're replacing it with what is in the air. What he says is the hyper-real. As we are doing that, so we're replacing the real, it also becomes more and more difficult to communicate about what is actually real because the map we all have then different maps in right. our head
2: right.
1: about the same thing that we're looking at but the thing that we're looking at might already be also a hyper artificial thing so a city is like a, a virtual reality already right. because it's a it's a, it's a projection from uh, yeah what's inside of us and we make it physical and my to get back to the point my yeah. where i thought like okay the main threat of artificial intelligence is not skynet taking over the world or that we're all going to be unemployed it's just that we're gonna lose even more or we are going to accelerate uh, our communication and our coordination problems that we already have in the world because we are not going to be able to make good sense anymore because we're not going to be able to be sure that whenever we're talking about something that our words actually mean the same thing and that we're actually talking about the same thing because if we have generative ai and we're spending an average five hours or more i don't know what the latest metrics are on digital devices mm-hmm. that is our reality yeah if we don't know how it's generated or <clears throat> even if we would know how it's generated it's it's we're getting a weird map of the physical real so our our human ancestors would live on a savannah and their physical environment would very much correspond to their mental environment because they're constantly living in that world. Maybe they every now and then have uh, shamanic trance sessions and I don't know, out into the stars, etc. We are spending most of our time in a digital environment and most of the world is getting replaced with a digital environment. But it is also making it super difficult to communicate to make common to have a mutual understanding and i thought that is probably the main threat of ai then i read that i think the one of the the main guys at google also stated this so i was happy with that
2: yeah
1: but then i heard daniel (laughs) smogzenberger talk about the threat of ai and then i that just felt like a punch in the stomach then i was like ah it's even worse he said, "Like it's a it's a it's an accelerator function of all the current technology that we have running that we have running debasing the world. So mm. our our uh, the sort of the global growth machine that we call the economy, and AI will is an optimization tool. And then if the if the if uh, if we don't set our directions right, if we don't align AI correctly, then it will optimize all these things." that are currently destroying the world. And it looks like we're doing that.
0: You know, it's, it's such a conundrum because it's. You know, first off, it's, it's interesting that the, the richest people are the people saying, look, we're using too much. Like that's a, that's a pretty big problem just in itself right there. Like, you know, and it seems to me that, you know, if you look at COP28 or any of these climate situations, everyone shows up in their private jet. The very people that are concerned with ruining the world are the people that have developed the technology to do it. And like it seems to me, if you want to lead by example, like yeah. you know, words are words make fantastic stories. And I love language, but you can say something to your blue in the face. And if your actions are different people mm-hmm. aren't going to listen to your words and yeah, i, I you know I, is, yeah. right it's 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 gargantuan and when you think about ai being an accelerator like what it's accelerating the the winning techniques the so-called winning techniques of people in positions of authority and now they're like hey wait a minute you guys can't do that only we can do that you guys can't do it we're going to shut it off for you like that yeah. th- that genie's out of the bottle like the the people that have the most us living in the west and the people that are above us like these people have to fundamentally change their lives otherwise yeah. nothing they say is going to do anything and like.
1: again it comes down to our definition of winning <laughs> so it, it, it's it's, it's yes. there yeah i mm-hmm. think uh, again i think daniel uh, uh i heard him say that i like that he said um uh there is no winning in a self-terminating system so you might be temporarily winning. It's the same, right. like if you if you have uh, if you have uh, spleen cancer, the cancer might be winning. Yeah. Thinks, thinks that that is winning. It's oh, yeah. I'm acquiring more resources and I'm dividing more often. That's <laughs> great. It's going well, but that at a certain moment the host will die. die. Right. Yeah. and I I I agree. It's <clears throat> it's it's a very tricky thing because it quickly devolves into also into politics and how to solve these major world problems. Right. I I think again a lot of my ideas come from sort of system thinkers.
2: Yeah.
1: it's, It's so how do we do global governance without global government and at the moment I think there's a lot of focus on how do we do it with global government. And I think a lot of people are, rightfully so, very worried about where that might lead. And there's of course a plethora of conspiracy theory and all this other shit. Also, again, it's a map that's made over physical reality, and it's super difficult to discern what is actually really happening or what are the motives. Or so, again, I find this also super difficult to navigate, and I'm not fully sure on. I think also again uh certainty is something that should be treated as suspicious
0: yes well said if
1: someone is too certain about what is going on because certainty is also the tool that gets wielded like oh i'm certain that these are the bad guys so we should just uh you just kill kill them all and then
2: mm-hmm.
1: so anytime that gets used and i see it a lot in the current media right it's it's sure. the, the hyperpolarization again and but the big problem there, with as you also pointed out, is the hypocrisy of those that speak about, okay, we have to yeah. lower emissions and net zero, and yet these billionaires that are
0: greenwashing more or less. Yeah, that's well said.
1: It's the, again, it's the, the, the um, signal that people pick up. So the yeah. signal is right. The signal yes. is that, yes, there is something going awfully mm-hmm. wrong, with how the, uh, the with the trajectory of global global uh, human civilization, mm-hmm. our population. It's just that there are a lot of bullshit merchants peddling their their different explanations as to why this is happening, and right. those explanations often get used to further their own goals, and that happens on the whole political spectrum. Uh, and indeed, then, but when these hypocrisies are then not also uh, admitted
2: mm-hmm. then
1: that further polarizes people because if someone and let's say traditionally conservative i'm just going to use that as a uh, so you progressives and conservatives uh, if a conservative person specifically says for instance okay yeah but uh, renewable energy also requires that we uh, mine in congo uh, and how green is that?" why am i not green if i drive my mm. uh, my gasoline car that's actually a point uh, and then what often happens in the discussion is, is that um people will be called or people who are concerned about the how we're going to adapt to climate change or yeah or to this changing planet often will uh will get thrown into a corner and be called uh, uh, Denialists or What sure. whatever is whatever uh, works for this uh, bipartisanship. Well, actually, it is a good question, and there is it is a very difficult way. And again, it will come down to what is our definition of winning, or what is right. our definition of adapting, or that we start talking about these things, and that we get a shared understanding of what do we actually find important, what are values actually. Yeah, and. I have the sense that at the moment, we just recently had a, a, a elections in the Netherlands, uh, which wasn't a very surprising result. It was a, a, one of the traditionally far-right parties won or mm. had, had the most uh, votes. And it seems to be, yeah, again, getting back to the, the problem of yeah. AI, it seems to be a communication problem as you mentioned before it's it it's how do we get from this this floating hyper real map where we're constantly in our where we're overexposed to all these different ways of seeing the world some have more truth in them or have more uh, let's say uh, have a higher resolution than others but how do we how do we get down back to a sort of felt human level where if you're communicating with someone you see each other first as a human and then later you can talk about that map but then vet: what do all these words actually mean when we talk about i don't know when we talk about adaptation because the first person some person will see climate adaptation as um like the 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 15 minute city uh uh conspiracy Mm -hmm. or that kind of stuff or the the wef um industrial agriculture uh, blah 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 all this top-down kind of stuff well another person might see it completely different yeah if they talk about adaptation they might think of uh, no localized energy smaller uh, wind turbines uh, communal living blah blah all this kind of stuff and the moment that we don't know what yeah you know, what it actually means to the other person what the word uh, what the word actually means to them then we start going this these then we're not communicating; we're just sending
0: information. Yeah, it. I feel like we're getting to a point where either or is being replaced by both and. Like, let's talk about like a fifteen-minute cities is both. It's a great way to to contain resources and have people live a more meaningful life. But it is also very constrictive. It's also definitely limiting your ideas, it's limiting your beliefs, is limiting what's possible. It's both, yeah. you know. And like, I think. again, I think, and it, again, I think the. Say, yeah. Can I
1: add? <clears throat> I yeah, think please. that the fifteen. I think that the fifteen-minute city. I, I've been curious about this one okay. because I, I I don't. So I try not to go into sort of internet rabbit holes and then just investigate <laughs> so conspiracy theories, right? Like okay, I, I'll just enjoy reading fiction then. Uh, that's, that's, that's a be- time well spent. Same thing,
0: it's the same thing. Yeah,
1: um, but with the 15-minute cities, I, I have a sense that it's so, it's very American uh, or very uh, United States of America focused because the infrastructure of the US is so car-based, right? Mm. And yeah. how uh, the suburbs function and that everything is so stretched far apart. That's of course a logistical nightmare if if you run out of gasoline or if you run out of electric vehicles, right? Um, so it, it, it costs so much energy to move food across all these massive, uh, and it's a, of course again a worldwide problem. But I think the 15-minute yeah. mm-hmm. city problem is a very American one because mm-hmm. I think here in the Netherlands most of our cities are 15 minutes, right? Because they were, they are older than a couple of hundred years old. Sure and then we didn't have cars and you couldn't it wasn't like okay i'm gonna get my milk but i'm gonna uh i don't know i have to be on horseback for two hours to get my milk so of course then it it, yeah the the infrastructure already makes sense but now yeah how do you do that in a country that was built with the car in mind at a certain moment and if that yeah if we're looking at peak oil so if if we're gonna have declining returns on oil fossil fuel is it's like a battery and and it's not being replenished so at a certain moment it will will run out so how do you future proof or adapt to that and then i can understand that this idea of 50-minute cities makes sense but you have again the top-down approach right where i can also understand some of the, the 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 let's say the more cynical or I would say what quickly gets lumped into conspiracy thing conspiracy yeah. thinking is already like it has a very negative connotation yeah and it doesn't have to have that because there might right. be quite a bit of truth in some conspiracies. sure and i'm also not that um trusting of any very large scale top-down uh, yeah again certainty a <laughs> very large top-down systems that's Again, try to create a left hemispherical map approach on yeah, the world, really. saying like uh, uh, we use this template for a city, mm-hmm. we put a stamp. While yeah. living, adapting systems, they will adapt to their environment. And I think if again, if you're on a um, if you're on a boat and you have to navigate a lot of, um, let's say you're navigating a place with a lot of small islands and it has very difficult. Um, tides or there's a lot of um uh let's say it's uh, it's it has reefs it's a very di- difficult to navigate area um let's say you're on there you have a perfect map of where all the the reefs are and you want to go to that uh you want to go to island a but if it's if it's uh, if it's uh, if it's calm weather then it's great you have that map yeah because the map very much matches the environment yeah what if there was a tsunami uh the day before and it's now storming are you going to use the map to navigate or are you going to just pay a lot of it you're going to use both most likely but are you going to pay a lot of attention to what is actually going on in your environment maybe the reef has changed yeah so if we're going to a very changing world yeah I put way more favor in bottom up living systems that adapt yeah. things instead of bureaucratic yeah. um, uh, here's your carbon credits um, yeah not saying that these these solutions might not work on a larger scale let's put them to use for industry i
2: don't
0: right. know right
1: but yeah it's a very difficult diff- it seems to be very difficult to navigate
0: yeah you know i When I think about, I read an interesting article a while back, and it was talking about some college was building a new part of their campus, and they had put up these beautiful buildings. And they had this wonderful architect that came in, and when it came time to lay the sidewalks, the chancellor's like, "Don't, don't put any sidewalks in." I'm like, what are you talking about? Are the kids going to walk? He's like, "Exactly. Why would we lay the sidewalks? Like, let's see where the kids walk, and then we'll lay the sidewalks." Because in the other parts of campus, there's all like these dirt paths. And anybody who's Ah, been been to a campus, like you see all these shortcuts that people take. So why why lay down the foundation, you know, until you see what the best course is? See, like if Mm. you look at ants, like I have tons, I have an ant problem in my house. And these buggers, man, they, they always make these, like they'll make a line from here, from A to B. But if I kill them, then they'll make a line from A to C to B. And like there's another thing with slime molds. They did I I read an article or I was speaking with Mark Viola who told me about this slime mold project. They made a uh like a um an agar plate in the shape of Japan and they put these slime yeah. molds in there and it cut yeah, these yeah, yeah. trails through it. And it just yeah. it's almost the exact same thing as the subway. Like look, or we we have a way of self-organizing. We are a giant collective self-organizing system. And when yes. people up top try to start making decisions like whether it's a corporation or a government, it's the same thing. And they yep. make poor decisions because they don't have the information of the collective on the bottom. They're looking yes. at it from like this top down linear approach. And that might be another reason why we're beginning to see this non-linear way of, of doing business, taking over. Shout out to the octopus movement. What's up everybody. I love you guys out there, but like mm-hmm. maybe that's what's going on with this nonlinear neurodivergent it's a return from the to the bottom up sort of organization. What do you think?
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. No. I uh, I hear you. I think um, I think that's true because it's also an adaptation to yes. this this sort of uh, the top down and I think it's easy to see that most of our top down systems are poorly aligned at yeah. the moment. Yep. With, with a life-affirming future. And <laughs> it's very difficult to realign them within the confines of how they are structured.
2: Right. So the
1: incentives within those structures are by probably already because they are so poorly aligned they cannot be changed within that system. Yeah, And I think then these, these different bottom-up ways um, as they are as the situation is evolving, you'll see that come up more and more. But you will also see more and more restrictive, uh, conservative old ways. So I think we're in a uh, what will happen during what is what is happening during collapse? Because I feel mm-hmm. like we're in collapse. I, f- I agree. Will we we will see both happening at the same time? So you'll have mo- you'll have places where there's more and more coherence in this sort of different way of seeing uh, different ways of seeing the future and trying to uh, adapt and you'll see more constriction on the other side. Yeah. So it's again, and, and
0: yeah. It's interesting. You know, I, I think we are in the midst of, of a collapsing system, you know, and I, I was speaking to a gentleman yesterday and he was talking about, you know, jobs and and some fast food restaurants, and he had mentioned like, man, they'll pay they'll pay like twenty five bucks an hour to work at a fast food, but and and there's nothing wrong with that. But the point we were saying is that the people that are at the top of institutions, be it government or industry, you see the people on the bottom uprising. Whether it's the Arab Spring or whether it's the unions fighting in the U.S., it's the Yellow Vest. People on the bottom are sick and tired of doing things without any meaning to them, no matter how much money you pay them. And the people at the top are like, this is ridiculous. You know how much money we're paying you? And the people at the bottom are like, I don't care. It's not about Mm. money, man. It's no longer about money. You could pay someone thousands of dollars and they're not even going to do it. Like that Mm. That should be a direct reflection to everybody at the top. This industry is garbage. No one wants to do it. And you have to pay people lots and lots of money to compromise their values just to do it, you might even have to replace the local culture with indigenous people to do it, because no one wants to do it. And that, that's a short amount of time. Those people are going to be pretty fed up with it too, you know. And I, it just—it echoes a dying system. And you know, I—I'm I, not an industry leader. I'm not in government, and I, I don't know what the answer is. But I don't think the answer is continuing to force feed people these. Solutions that don't work. It, yeah. Like, what do you see when you see a collapsing system? Like, what what, what do you see happening, or, or do you see any rays of sunshine that are beginning to happen?
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, yeah, to, um, i not. I would say that by my temperament. Uh, Okay, I can have a very pessimistic tendencies, uh, but my heart my heart isn't that way. So it's uh, what is it, scratch a cynic and you will find a, a bruised uh, yeah, yeah. idealist?
0: Yes, well said.
1: I think that. Um, I think, again, it's both. So yeah. as, as it's collapsing, we'll, we're seeing the most egregious forms of tyranny will we see and will emerge and will mm-hmm. uh become worse and worse and we will see people people connecting in ways that are actually human and um and that is already happening i think mm-hmm. there there's so much impulse towards these these I, I i use the word life affirming uh that i i think life with a capital l so it's sort yeah. of sacred sacred life Life affirming practices of humans, humans as a species stepping up to be a keystone species uh, which serve the ecosystem, which serve the global ecosystem. And I, I, I actually or I really feel that that is possible and that we are being yeah. called and asked by by the planet to do that.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and we're seeing that. And at the same time, we see doubling down. I would call it the maybe even the cancer. So the sort of the the yeah. I'm I'm playing around with this metaphor, which yeah I'll probably write about at some point. It's um, that we're in a planetary um, metamorphosis. um, I love it. Specific, like with how a um, caterpillar moves to the butterfly. Yep. And there are all these different stages that a caterpillar has to go through before becoming a butterfly, uh, and it's almost like they're all like in, um, initiation rituals. And I think we as individuals are going through this, but we're also going through this as a collective, but also as a planet. So I think Gaia, as the planetary system, is also moving towards this metamorphosis, and what i feel is is that what i just call a a um a cancer i think so so the 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 caterpillar behavior program is to acquire as much mass biomass as possible while fending off attackers Yeah. to so not be eaten so it's a quite fearful i, I again i have to anthropomorphize it yeah
0: the, why the wouldn't you of course
1: i i, I don't know what what it's like to be a, a caterpillar. But I can imagine it's a quite stressful uh, experience as it's eating and making sure it's not being uh, eaten, but it's very focused on that. But at a certain moment, the caterpillar will, after a, se- a series of molting, so it will lose, or it will grow new skin and move on, it will have to, uh, curl up under a leaf and then spin itself into a Chrysalis into a cocoon mm-hmm. uh, And more or less die because the caterpillar will lose its entire structure and it will still be Metabolically active so all these cells it will decompose, but then We'll have to recompose or compose into a butterfly So this is this super drastic transition phase that it goes into and what I think yeah, is happening. Is this is happening on different skills and different yeah. individuals, and also in the in our society, it's happening in different ways. And we still have this old program or old program for some civilizations, or I think for some places on the planet, there's still a lot of accumulation going on. Mm-hmm. Necessarily accumulation, because there's a very low material welfare. But in other places where we're massively affluent, where we're over-consuming. Um, we're kind of being asked, I think, to step into this cocoon and start shedding this old program of just mm. wanting to eat constantly. And what I would call the cancer is maybe even a virulent form of this, of this uh, caterpillar that is just uh, maybe has a, has a, some uh, insect yeah. world is, is brutal, right? You have a, uh, these different types of parasitic wasps that, for instance, lay eggs in other insects, and then these larvae will control the behavior of yep. the of the of the host. So maybe, as a global civilization, we have a parasite in our injected in our skull that's keeping us in this overconsumptive mode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I I, I identify with that on so many. So many levels, you know, and if we if we if we inject the ideas of the book, the fourth turning in there, too, and we just look at our species as the caterpillar, you know, like maybe this giant generation of the boomer generation dying is the chrysalis with which we're about to break out of when we start looking at a lot of these older ideas, maybe our metaphors, our language, our ideas, like here's a giant portion of us. And when I say us, I mean humankind, like, you know, this generation is facing the unrealized dreams and there's all these wars and these silly ideas that like younger generations like that is so dumb you're gonna get up and go work for 50 years and never do anything you want like that's a that is an old idea and it's it doesn't serve us anymore as a species like, Mm. you know, like, I think that those things are dying and i see it in my own life too maybe maybe it's because i'm going through a midlife crisis or maybe it's because i've decided to change who i am that i can feel like the caterpillar and understand the metaphor of new life but you know on some level but clearing all these things out of my house what i realize is even though it's stressful to maybe lose your home getting rid of things has made me realize all these things that i have accumulated here have got in between the relationships with the people in my life. Getting yeah. rid of things has helped my communication with my wife and my child be better. Like, it's mesmerizing to think of, like, just get rid of this. And I'm like, why can't I get rid of this book? And I'm like, oh, it's a first edition. Oh, you know, but like, that's so dumb. Just give it who cares? When was the last time you read it, George? I've already read it three times. Okay, well, then maybe you should give it away to somebody to read it, you know? But you start thinking, like, why am I holding on to this? And if you speak speak to older generations who have to go and clean out their house or they're they're getting ready to move, like they have that same problem of letting things go. But I think it speaks to your metaphor of like, look, the world is calling us. Look, start letting go. And if you talk to any death doulas or people who spend with time with people on their last days, I think that those are the conversations we the younger generation should be listening to. And some of those things they say are. You know, they never say, I wish I would have worked longer hours. I wish I would have made more mm-hmm. money. No one on yeah. their deathbed says that. They yeah. do say, I wish I would have been a better husband. I wish I would have been a better better wife. I wish I would have been a better son. I wish I would have been a better parent. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the things that the next generation should be listening to. Of like, okay, well, let me make those changes now. And maybe that's the earth telling us. Maybe that's, maybe the earth communicates to us through us. And there's generational talk of like, hey, here's what you guys should be doing for the next generation. And, but, mm. I, yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about. And I, I love that metaphor because I, I, I see it in my life, talking to you and other people. Like I see profound change happening in real time. It's hard mm. to change. It's hard to grow. It's hard to let things go. It's, oh, it's yeah. wonderful, though.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, nice. I, I like the points that you bring in there. It's it's Yeah, it's letting go on all these different yes. levels. And it's also... What I also feel is there is there's also much needed compassion for these old things because they got yeah. us here. Yes. And that's also these old programs or these old ways of being. Material accumulation, yeah, that also brought us a lot of material wealth and safety. We've right. just been in a 70 plus year after Second World War. We've been in this yeah. planetary growth planetary banquet stage right with the fossil fossil hydrocarbons which allowed the human caterpillar to gorge to grow to grow right. and to grow and this biomass will have to decompose so we'll have to move out of its current composition the caterpillar composition yeah and those materials will not go to waste they they can be used to become this butterfly and it's the same in our inner inner journey our inner processes is all the survival mechanisms and the trauma or the coping that you constructed around trauma yeah got you here got you to the place where you are and um letting go is also putting to rest and but also honoring it's like giving a funeral It's it's uh, or doing composting (laughs) <laughs> let it feed yes. whatever wants to grow next yeah. that's that's the art of the, that flow of letting letting things go yeah and then if we come full circle again with Ian Gilchrist the left hemisphere thinks in linear linear sense the right hemisphere is way better in thinking in flow yeah in, in these larger movements so you
0: know. yeah it's it's fascinating I I does the caterpillar have to eat? does it eat its way out of the chrysalis or does it break through the parts that are weak?
1: I think it breaks through the parts mm. and then it um it has to I think because if it doesn't able to, then its wings will uh, right uh, so that for the butterfly, the wings will not be strong enough to fly, so it will, mm. it will have to also do that,
0: ah. Yeah, and you could see some of the institutions being the weak spot on the chrysalis, be it education or government or uh, labor, yeah. like maybe these are the maybe the sun is shining through and we we're like, hey, we can break out right here. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 It's a call. It's yeah. a continuous, I think a continuous call to um I, I like to uh, I heard it somewhere called the hospicing work, and I I really really agree with that idea because hospicing is yeah. taking care of that which is dying and really taking care of it so giving giving something a a, a good death um, and it's honoring as well and yeah. I think in modernity we are so used and revolutionary thinking is so used in destroying the old or get, yeah. if only we get rid of the old, the old and I don't mean the old right. people right. I right. mean Old the old, system was the new old, old, yeah right. yeah exactly but like like it doesn't go anywhere so it's it's like uh it's, it's also how we treat in our inner our type trash we treat it like we throw it in the trash bin and then we feel like <laughs> it's gone but we actually know where it goes right all these right. plastics they go into the oceans they go into our clouds they go into our water they go into our bodies nothing is ever gone. Uh, in that sense, so these these parts. So if if we don't honor the old things, the old systems, um, we're just setting ourselves up for yeah. more problems. By really presencing and sitting with the situation and everything that is, and then accepting, and I think then accepting in the Buddhist sense, so not accepting and saying like, oh, this is, uh, I accept you, this is great, but more like accepting that is reality. I accept that the things are as they are. Then we can decide on how to deal with it and how to orient ourselves towards the future. But as as long as we're not accepting things as they are, yeah. we're seeing things as problems, and then we're thinking to quick fixes, quick solutions, mm-hmm. and then we're causing more problems.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are no shortcuts.
1: No, no. Although yeah. I, at moments, you would wish that, right? there are always moments where you're like if only things were if only things were easy if only yeah. uh, blah blah yeah. blah we wouldn't have this uh, economic system if only
2: yeah
1: all the stuff but yeah unfortunately uh, it appears to be uh, hard work
0: <laughs> yeah you know I, I like what you said earlier too a moment ago about when you were speaking about Letting go and, and thinking about the things in our life being a catalyst to get us where we are. Like, like, and maybe that's part of embracing the old is realizing these things were necessary. That crisis in your life, that was the catalyst that brought you to this stage. Like you needed that. And on some level, being aware of that allows you to deal with it, or at least embrace it in a way that that isn't frightful. You know, when you can when you can yeah. embrace something and be like, oh God, I'm so sad. I'm so fuck. I'm so sorry this happened, you know, but at least you're embracing it with yeah. the understanding that it was a catalyst to get you somewhere. Sometimes that's enough, you know?
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. And that isn't again, it's the um I think the major part of um dealing or oh, not not dealing that's uh, I don't like that word. Uh, the major part in resolving trauma is acceptance mm-hmm. and because it, it is trauma because we don't accept it. So it's, it, it is kept out outside of us or it's kept frozen as not part of the self. The moment we start accepting it and welcoming it back again, it can start to move with us again. But there's a bit good reason usually why we keep trauma outside because it hurts. Because Mm. there, we cannot deal with the heavy emotions, and of course, there are very different gradations of trauma trauma with a capital T and small t. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, acceptance, uh, uh, yeah, and from compassion, of course, yeah, compassionate acceptance of the situation, and that's presencing again, that's that's sitting with how reality really is, and yeah, you perception is key again to see things as they are or as good or as yeah as good as you can are able to do that to see things as they actually are with all the pain that comes from it and that's also with the pain for for instance for a collapsing society yeah
2: yeah uh,
1: biodiversity collapse yeah that hurts that is that is really painful to me i feel that a lot but for a lot of people that's incredibly painful and it should be painful because it's incredibly sad but what is there to learn from that what is what are we being asked to do that's constantly the question that i ask it's like okay how, how do we listen to this what, what what is how how do we make not only meaning from this but also how do we let this meaning inform our behavior what are we what are we being asked to do
0: I feel like the world is on some level like our, our uncle or our big brother. And it's like, hey, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. You know, like, <laughs> look what you're doing, you dummy. Knock it off. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're, 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 like, passionate acceptance. Like, that's profound to think about. You know, and, and when you talk about we're bumping up against the solution problems to our prior solutions. A large part of these problems came from us not, came from not having passionate acceptance, from us wanting to do more, from wanting to, hey, let's stop these people from dying. I don't know. Can you? Like, let's look at old people in the old folks home. Let's stop them from dying. Let's put them on this machine and put them in a room and feed them food and charge the insurance company 10 million, you know, like, is that passionate acceptance or is passionate acceptance like, let's go have a big party. You know, and I don't have the answers to that. And I maybe each yeah, individual no, no. gets to gets to say that, but on yeah. a grand scale, maybe maybe that's what we're coming to as a species is of like, look, we can't control this, hmm. and maybe there's some things we shouldn't try to control.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I haven't read it yet, but uh, I, I I listened to an interview uh, that uh, conversation with Emma Gilchrist and Dougal Hein do what i uh, also admire and i think the title was also the world is not a problem and
2: (laughs) i love that
1: yeah and it really comes down again to that values indeed what are what are our values what is important (laughs) in the world what do we see because we see death we see it as a problem a problem to be fixed yeah death is a part of life i'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't make sure that people uh, t- t- don't die of diseases that can be treated all this kind of thing. right but if we are so death averse i think that is without death life doesn't exist
0: mm-hmm.
1: death and life are intimately intertwined They're two sides of the same coin by saying or by by being so death averse i think that is causing a lot of problems in our in our world that's one of the drivers. This fear, fear of death.
0: Maybe the main driver. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know we yeah. think about language like palliative. Pa is the root word. That means to cover up. You know, when you have palliative care, you're covering up people dying. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the Western attitude towards death. Like, we don't want to talk about it. It's taboo. We don't want to be around it. We don't want to be reminded of it. You know, yeah. we're afraid of it.
1: Yeah, yeah well again it's uh we're being currently we're actually surrounded by death on Mm. massive scale so we have biodiversity crisis that's death of the natural world or the wild world but we are we're also uh, i saw this metric of uh, the amount of animals that get slaughtered each year in uh, industrial agriculture
2: Mm.
1: it's insane (laughs) it's really really insane if you just yeah if you stick with it for a moment or so feel into that so we're we're surrounded by death uh but we 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 conveniently uh uh, put it out of view so in the netherlands you have several areas where the netherlands is a big exporter of uh, meat and that's all mostly all factory farm Um, but you have all these stables where the animals are only kept indoors for their whole life under these horrible conditions. But there are they don't have any windows, huh? mm. And so if you cycle through the land, it's like, oh, there's all these big stables here. Well actually in in there it's horrible conditions and these animals being slaughtered on a mass scale. And it's the same with all it's the same. Okay, I will just make it's yeah. the same with all people's homes. Mm. We also put that we put people dying. That's something that happens not not around us. That's just something that yeah old people we put away in old people's homes it's not integrated in our society we don't have a i read somewhere that modernity sort of dist- sort of ruptured uh, civilization in a sense that it it uh, um, isolated all the different generations so we don't have a culture but we have a youth culture and a middle age culture and an elderly people and by by creating so much space between all the different generations, we don't have a, uh, there's no passing on of uh, wisdom in that sense. And of course, this happens in smaller scale, but I'm just saying on a societal level. And death, the lesson of death is super important. If you if you learn as a child that death is a part of life, that should, should be something that you actively feel and, have to come to terms with but if you're never if you never encounter death on um, in a personal direct way then probably you'll start living with the idea that oh that that is something that happens to some and then if you become aware that you might die you'll probably be super scared of this and then you'll look for all these different ways of escaping death or coping
0: you know it, it's interesting to think about the way we as individuals treat the world is might be a reflection of how we're treated. And if you start looking at factory farming, you know, they have the the little cows over here and the big cows over here and then the slaughterhouse kind of sounds a lot like what you described about a youth culture, middle culture, and then we don't talk about the slaughterhouse. You know, and 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 what does happen when people become aware that they die? Well then they they start pulling out of the system. Like, hey, wait a minute. I'm gonna die. I don't want to work here anymore. I don't want to do yeah. this stuff that's not meaningful. And maybe yeah. that's a reason why culture goes a long way, or propaganda, or the message goes a long way into making sure. Hey, don't worry about dying. Go bungee jumping. Hey, isn't this girl cute? Hey, isn't that guy handsome? Like, don't why do you think about sex and started thinking about dying? You know, like the our world hides death at least in the west i think for that reason because on some level we are factory farming like we are we do things to animals that happen to us how could we not like that's that's in our nature it need not be that way but and and maybe that's what's happening maybe we're awakening to this idea that look we're much more than a race from the from the hospital to the graveyard and if you want to take it on another weird sad level like what happens to aborted babies? What happens to your child when your child's stillborn? That baby's taken and made for parts, you know, in a lot of places. I know it's sad to talk about, but the same thing with old people. The same thing on your license in, in the States. Oh, hey, are you an organ donor? We're going to make sure you're an organ donor. We're going to put that sticker right on your card when you die. Like, whoa, wait a minute now. Like, let's talk about this. People don't want to talk about it. But on some yeah. level, you know, we start getting into this idea of Soylent Green. <laughs>
1: yeah. Wow, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. <laughs>
1: Nice, <laughs> mm. yeah, and again, the, the common denominator is factory, right? Factory. That's the, it's an industrialized, factory. industrialized model, of, yeah,
2: factory. industrialized
1: model of civilization,
0: an industrial revolution. <laughs>
1: yeah, it, it's, it's, um, yeah, we can have a whole discussion about that, but the, the, that sort of comes down to to. Yeah, that. I'm quite critical about. Technology in that sense, how technology is used to shape shape the world. So t- yeah. technology brings a lot of, has brought us a lot of great things, but it's uh, unchaining. I have to think back on, uh, I think, Engels from uh, mm. Karl Marx and Engels. I think mm-hmm. he said that, um, that the capitalist is like the sorcerer who lost control The spell, or the the creature that he summoned, and I think technology Mm -hmm. is that is that we we we, and of course technology. You have to first define what is technology. But let's say material, uh, just 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 the the technological way of how we, we administer the world or how we we sort of treat the world in in a lot of our systems. Yeah, I think that that is a has a sort of mind on its own or that is something that was. Yeah, that's a, a it's a it's a super powerful way of manipulating the world. But if it's not. Um, if it's not couched in wisdom, uh, then we're yeah, we end up in situations like we're in right now, I would say in the 21st century, it's 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 the and, and the drivers behind it. Uh, to come back to the fear of death and if we are not aware of what drives us then we're just being driven right
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and if we are I also had this I wrote this I think in a post I I have this sense that that we're living in a massively traumatized society or we're massively traumatized species and we're dealing with millennia of trauma in our in our system Uh, and i mean our body so stored up trauma in our bloodlines and yeah what do traumatized people do they they cope they survive you're in a survival mode if you're traumatized and i think the majority of our consumer culture is based on coping and it's optimizing for coping for strategies not having to deal with that trauma not having to feel And again, looking at it this way makes me way less angry towards people or towards Mm. systems. It makes me feel way more compassionate towards people. Because Mm -hmm. it's like, oh shit, we're just a lot of lot of hurt monkeys, yeah, or apes. And we're we're trying to get by. And only those who are, let's say, most fortunate. Uh, be it in their social surroundings, but also in their material surroundings, yep. have the have the presence and the opportunity to resolve trauma and not get re-traumatized. Right.
0: right. Yeah. It's it's well said. Like it, it takes quite a bit of time, at least for me, to stumble upon compassion from anger you know and maybe that's a learned behavior after a while maybe after someone traumatizes you enough you begin to find compassion for that question of why would they do this how could they do this maybe that's where the compassion begins to seep in but you know it it is interesting to think about those those being anger and compassion being similar in some ways because you know the way through anger might be through compassion like because you have to be angry at something. You have to be super pissed off before you can sit, empathize with someone who's pissed off and be like, Oh man, I bet you something happened to their kid. I bet you something happened to that. Like, and all of a sudden, once you begin to embrace that anger, then sk- like a balloon pops out that little bubble of compassion. Like, Oh, maybe that thing happened. <gasps> oh man. I bet that did happen. Mm. That would happen to me. You know, be in some ways it's, you have to have a little bit of quiet time, be it, be it in a safe space or having some surroundings where you're, I don't know. Do you, do you think you need that? Do you think you need to have material possessions or at least a little bit of wealth to get compassion from anger?
1: Mm, No, not necessarily. Yeah. And I think, think, I think the journey to compassion is, yeah, how to get there is different. I think for for uh, there's a different paths, and yeah. i think with anger it's important to notice that anger is uh, passion and so you can only be ang- angry about something if you're very passionate yeah. about yeah. it and so why are you passionate about it and anger can also be just simple giving up sending out boundaries
2: mm-hmm. because you're
1: passionate about your integrity yes. your physical integrity or your moral or mental integrity it's a way of uh standing up for yourself or for someone else uh, it's passion yeah um yeah to go back to the question mm, no you don't probably need material wealth but i think right. you need enough material wealth in the sense that you're not in a survival mode that's what i mean mm. that you're not uh, so you have a bit of shelter you're not being uh, you're not uh, uh chilled in the rain or you're, you're yeah you're not constantly looking for food, or you're you're struggling to survive. It's difficult to. Uh, I think the moment your your physical, if your physical body starts deteriorating because you are in uh, uh, poor conditions, it will become more and more difficult to have a compassionate outlook on things. And not saying that it's impossible, yeah. but
0: right. Do you- do you think compassion can only or do you think the compassion may come more easily with more life experience or lived experience
1: yeah yeah probably and maybe even um uh, i would call it then soul so, so, mm. so, so yeah more more lived experience on this planet or another other planes of existence
2: reincarnating
1: mm. yeah
0: yeah. What you had written a little bit of well, I was reading a post about AI versus real ecology that you had posted about. Hmm. And yeah. I think that what, maybe you can unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I think it was the the the
1: uh, I referenced the uh, video of Nate Hagen's. Yes, followed. that's the one. <laughs> yeah, and he, he he more or less explained the point that um what I used previously is that a lot of people see AI as a as a fixing or as a tool that fixes things mm-hmm. but are not aware of the material cost that's behind AI. So how much energy it actually has to use, computational power and all these kind of things, let alone how it's aligned. If it's aligned to f- actually fix fix the problems that we want them to fix. And so Nate Hagens, he used I think he said using AI to Using AI to fix climate change is like using gasoline and a bit of math to fix a uh, forest fire. I like that point. And I thought like, yeah, because what he talks about is he constantly uh, hammers down the point of uh, energy, that the base of our society is energy and not money. and, And that we are living in a time where we have a crazy amount of energy. It seems to be free because we don't uh, we don't pay for oil. We only pay for how much it costs to extract oil. Right. So the oil itself, we uh, like it, it's nature's bounty. Let's say so we're we're getting it out of the out of the planet, but it's something that is high, super precious. And if you think about it, I, I like the anal- or I like the, the using the story of if you have a let's say you have a liter of uh, a liter of uh, uh gasoline so you can uh, yeah you can hold it in your hand like you have a uh, yeah you're you're american so it's a, it's a different system but never mind so the small amount of uh, gasoline right um you can put that in a car and then it, it can drive about uh, 16 kilometers with that or 18 depending on how so it can it can move this very heavy thing it can move it for so far but you can also load the car with way more stuff so the crazy amount of energy that is in just this small liquid form and if you then think about how much how much energy would it cost you to push a car for 16 kilometers and it's like we're we not he uses energy blindness. Uh, again, Nate Agans watch watches stuff. It's it's really, really good. He uses the term energy blindness for this, and I, I think it's super apt. And it's the same with AI. So it's the energy blindness behind how much does this all cost? We're so blind to what it costs. We just put in a we put in a plug in the outlet and then oh things run. But we're never aware of I'm also not aware of how much energy things cost. I have to spend time to be aware of those
0: things. Have you read any of the there's 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 a few camps when it comes to AI. One of them is is looking at looking at it through the the lens of like you know, Elon Musk sometimes is worried about it. And if you look at what happened with open AI recently and Sam Altman you know, being fired and then let back and, and being bought by Microsoft and OpenAI being a private company. You know, like a lot of people are worried about AI and it seems that the the AGI, artificial general intelligence, seems to be a sticking point. But what do you, have you read any arguments to the idea that, of the accelerationist and how it could be a positive thing? Have, I'm curious if you read about that particular I, I,
1: I a couple of years back, when I was reading into philosophy, mm-hmm. I was interested in the sort of accelerationism as a as a sort of uh, what is it, M- movement, how oh, would you call it? Um and there are a lot of like a lot of again, the term has now become problematic because it's associated with all this far right shit. Um, but um yeah, I was interested in it and the idea of like okay, can we if we accelerate fast enough and we can create this artificial super intelligence. If it's aligned well, then we can solve all problems of humanity, all this stuff. Um, yeah, I, I see that as um, a continuation of the myth that we are already living in so mm-hmm. the myth of progress.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: the myth of progress has been promising us. I read this somewhere, I, I really like this. Um, that the myth of progress matching the scientific, uh, or matching the enlightenment and the scientific revolution, why it is our dominant myth of how we see the world is it because it was more potent than the previous myth, which was, uh, the previous myth within Europe so within western Europe where the scientific revolution really took off which was uh, Protestantism or belief in God as in the the you will reach the kingdom of heaven when you die but what the myth of progress offered was the kingdom of heaven here on earth through progress through technological advancement and that's such a tantalizing prospect and i think that is a base driver of a base assumption of our systems uh, let alone of the people who have a lot of power because there's also the myth of progress is that oh we can also become immortal in this life so we can become the gods and that's a myth as all the civilization i think uh, tower of babel was a myth of humans wanting to become gods i think that nah, I, i'm not sure i think that the 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 pyramids the egyptian pyramids were also the sort of most advanced technology that the civilization had at that time to allowing their rulers to become gods that was also to join sort of the, that space so I think most of the, the the very utopic talk about AGI and uh, uh, artificial ASI, artificial superintelligence. I think it's it's mostly informed by this myth, and I'm, uh, I have serious doubts whether the artificial intelligence that we have right now is anywhere near what happens in consciousness or human cognition. And if it can actually reach that again there's this i'm only cursorily aware of the different theories in that field but i think it's a very physicalist argument that uh, that consciousness emerges from enough computation i think that's one of the main ideas of the source uh, and then i can figure like okay yeah if we put enough complex computation create enough complex neural networks with computer then it might become conscious at some point i don't i don't think that consciousness arises from matter. i think that consciousness is primary so yeah that that yeah to give a sort of answer on how i look at it
0: i love it yeah i i don't think you come into this world i think you come out of it you know and i, I don't I don't know that we have the ability to like we already give life to beings. I don't know that we could create something else, but it's interesting. I it, it's fun to think about. I we on this topic, when we think about the world we're living in and, and all the amazing tools we're creating. Have you read any science fiction where AGI is a positive force?
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <gasps>
0: do I don't know that I have like I, like it starts. It always starts off good, and then like you start seeing these little cracks and like
1: uh, in the, um, the recent one by uh, Andrei Tarkovsky. I think he's British. Yeah, yeah. I think AGI. The, the the woman who is the who is the AGI with sort of a template for the agi she's mm-hmm. bats it insane mm. but after enough sort of uh being embedded enough in a sort of uh wise system she sort of does well she still mm-hmm. has a she's still very rude-mouthed and has her own ideas but but it's aligned with humanity but uh, yeah i'm curious that that Maybe it's also just incredibly difficult to construct a life affirming AI, one that is aligned to really positive, uh, positive outcome. And moreover, to make one that is not, maybe it's easier to make one that's life affirming than it's one that is affirming to us as a species. So maybe it's in the large scale easier to make a AI that's wise enough to see sort of the whole course of where of life, so sort of sort of this this endless creative process of unfolding uh, uh, complexity, Mm. something that is aligned with that, than to make something that is aligned with humans as we are now, because we are not aligned at the moment with that unfolding process. So, yeah. Yeah. It,
0: it blows my mind to think I I think the science fiction writers are amongst the most creative and imaginative and wonderful people when it comes to their stories. And it blows my mind to think that the most perhaps the most imaginative among us have trouble imagining this being a good thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like not I even think, these I, guys
0: can imagine it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and I think the future. Uh, yeah, I have to go in a bit, but I think the I think the future is um, is something that pulls us towards it. So maybe yeah. futures already exist.
2: Yeah, and
1: uh, and sci-fi. Is a creative way, any way of art, fiction, vision work, is a way of mapping these different types of futures. Yeah. And then seeing if we can align to one that makes sense. But then to get back to your point, I think that we should be worried that a lot of the fiction of, on AI is this topic. Maybe that's uh, like a very good, maybe that's like a good uh, sort of marker or ruler to see like okay if we can hardly think of a positive way of doing this (laughs) should we
0: right (laughs) yeah simon i love our conversation man so much fun we take we take a it around everywhere and it's really it's we, we have to do it more often and we should bring in we should do a panel and we should conversate more often i know you have to go i'm super thankful for your time thanks for sticking with me this long Um, Before I let you go, though, where can people find you? What do you have coming up? What are you excited about? Uh,
1: Yeah, cheers, man. Uh, I also enjoy. uh, I enjoy the conversation. This is fun, and for me, Me indeed, indeed, it's just stepping in. We'll see where it goes.
0: Yeah, Um, I love it.
1: Next time we could talk way more about fiction. That's fun.
0: We should. Yeah, Yeah. we should have started that Um,
1: earlier. Yeah, I I would say most people can find me at uh, on my LinkedIn profile. Currently, I'm using that. I'm working on a website but that will be more informed on what i do professionally and i think by linkedin it's just uh, people find this interesting or just want to have a chat with me uh, you can just uh send me uh send me uh, a message
0: i would recommend everybody do it uh simon is an amazing individual he's fun to talk to he's one of the most well-read people i've ever had on the podcast and he's got a unique view of things that will help you challenge some of your your regular ideas so i'm really thankful for it i'll hang on briefly afterwards i'll talk to you just shortly afterwards but ladies and gentlemen i hope your monday goes amazing i hope you have a beautiful day and i hope that you choose to let go of all the things that you think you need and put in place the things that'll make your life better that's all i got for today ladies and gentlemen aloha aloha everyone